So as we explained in the end of the last episode, uh, we decided to chop up this part two of the miniseries uh, where we focused on the trial, the execution of Jesus. We've decided to divide that topic into two parts um, within this bigger miniseries on Jesus and his last life. This is the topic of who was Jesus. And so we begin the conversation again with the discussion of Barabbas. We begin with a discussion of the thieves on the cross. What does it mean when we talk about thieves in this context? Why do we talking about burglars? What exactly does that mean? And we explore the idea of God's kingdom not being of this world. What does Jesus mean when he makes that claim? Uh, and what does this mean for the kind of the implications like what are the people choosing in this moment um but i'll stop there and let you guys pick up as we continue with this question of who was jesus part two the trial of an execution and we begin pick up with a discussion here about barabbas The story of Barabbas, right? The thief, the insurrectionist. Um, <laughs> you know, John specifically uh, says, uh, Jesus says that my kingdom is not of this world. So the significance of choosing Barabbas, why, why would that be significant? Right. Uh, so Barabbas is, first of all, his name is very weird. Uh, Barabbas is a, a Greek version, we're going to get into the language again here, but it's a Grecified version of another Aramaic word, right? So, so earlier I talked about the, the Kavaranash, right? The, the bar Kavaranash, that, that means son, right? That's where the son of man part comes in. So, uh, Bar Abba, which would be the Aramaic version, uh, is son of the father. <laughs> so it's a kind of a weird little phrase, like what? What is yeah. what are we talking about here? Like, was this a yep. nickname? Was it? You know, I, I honestly don't know. Um, it doesn't sound like a kind of given name. Honestly, it does sound like a kind of, you know, maybe a, a nickname that was given to him uh, because he is a a what is sometimes called a thief, right? Or is he an insurrectionist? You know, that the translations of the Gospels uh, vary on this. Uh, but the, the it, okay, he's often called a thief, like the thieves who are who are. Uh, crucified on each side of Jesus, or he's called mm -hmm. a brigand. Um, that brigand gets a little closer. Um, it's sort of an archaic English word, but uh, the the thief idea. It's not that he was a burglar. Uh, a a, a letos, um, if I'm remembering, or a um, letes. I try to remember what the exact form is. Um, is a um, is a basically a, a, a rebel, right? It is mm -hmm. uh, someone that would be kind of equivalent to, say, um, what we call an insurrectionist group, say, even in the Middle East today, right, uh, that are trying to overthrow governments or carry out terrorist attacks or, um, uh, you know, what have you. Um, they, are, they are ideological um, freedom fighters um, who... So, Barabbas probably is, uh, is, is like a zealot, right, which we later called um, a, is the title that these, these rebels go by, um, someone who, who is zealous for Israel, right, and is trying to make this uh, happen um, by you know, bring, bringing God's kingdom, throwing out the Romans, not by the means that Jesus is looking for, but by the means that, yeah, well, how political organizations often work, and how this stuff does play out in, in the, the real world, which is by the end of a sword, basically. Uh, and so Pilate uh, here is, is offering uh, to release um, uh, Barabbas in place of Jesus, um, uh, or release one of them, right? Uh, and, and in John, Jesus says pretty explicitly, and Pilate does seem like he's trying through most of the Gospels to, to get Jesus off, he wants to be fair. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, he is a, um, he, he sort of asks it like, okay, are you a king? Are you actually claiming to be like this rebel? 
Are you claiming to be this kind of insurrectionist? Are you claiming to be the same sort of thing that Barabbas is? And so when Jesus says this phrase in John 19, look, my kingdom is not of this world, uh, this has often been taken to mean, oh, Jesus' kingdom is in heaven. He's talking about going away to heaven someday. You know, it's not anything that has to do with earthly matters. Well, not exactly. This would be better translated as my kingdom is not from this world. Um, if you think about the logic of the Lord's Prayer, you know, thy kingdom come, thy, earth be, or thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus is saying, like, the principles of my kingdom uh, work, you know, its origin, its roots are in heaven, not, you know, here in this world, which operates like Barabbas, you know, does. You know, Barabbas has a, is it, is an idea about what the kingdom of God should be, presumably. Um, and Jesus has another, right? And Barabbas is a kind of nationalistic, ideological, um, you know, zealot, uh, he's probably an assassin, right? I think he's accused of violence in the Gospels. Um, and honestly, he's probably the person who's supposed to be crucified next to those other two thieves, those other two uh, insurrectionists. Um, and Jesus is, you know, again, John is saying, yeah, my principles don't work that way. If it did, my followers would come and try to fight the way that Yabravas and his folks do. Um, but th but we don't operate that way. And so that's an important point here. Jesus is drawing a distinction um, between the two. Um, and, and so let me throw the question at you, Zach. What, what is the significance then, do you think, sort of on a first take, of the, of the crowd choosing Barabbas instead of Jesus? Like what's, what is the, the take, what was the gospel writer you know, indicating with that? Uh, I mean, the overarching thing is that the human the human instinct is sinful, you know, like we, yeah. we draw, we gravitate towards sin. And so, you know, like John 18 talks about Barabbas being a robber. And then, you know, uh, Mark fifteen seven talks about, you know, he was a murderer. So it's like, I think right. Pilate chose someone deliberately who was notorious as a prisoner. Like people knew who Barabbas was. He was a pretty popular thug. <laughs> um, right. So this wasn't like a, hey, this is your run-of-the-mill criminal. This would have been like a very public, like, you have a choice here. Um, exactly. And I think, honestly, like, Pilate was trying to, like, in my, the way I interpret this, he was trying to get himself an out. Um, yeah. You know, the, he is he purely just trying to give them an option of, like, do you really want to condemn this innocent man? He says this in three, three different attempts to exonerate himself. The first one is... Yeah. Uh, he washed his hands, you know, he declared that he was innocent of any of this guilt, which obviously you're not because you have the final say. Right. Second, uh, he stated clearly that Jesus was just a person and that this was not worthy of death. So he's like trying to stand up for Jesus on his behalf. Uh, and then third, he offered to, to punish Jesus and then release him. Right. So uh, the fact that, you know, people were, were really wanting the death of Jesus you know, uh, it wasn't so much about Barabbas, but it does yeah. show later, like what the exchange is, right? Because if you think of the cross, yeah. you think of the, th the three criminals on the cross, it should have been two criminals and Barabbas. And so yeah. God had to treat Barabbas like Jesus so he could treat Jesus like Barabbas. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, the, Jesus, who, yeah, Jesus who himself is the son of the father right. in the Christian tradition. And so, Jesus had to, teach, you know, he, he basically was a substitute, which is exactly what Jesus Christ is for us. And so yes. there's a symbolic of like, man, we, we're all a Barabbas. You know, we may have not right. murdered someone. We not, may have not have been a criminal. But to choose someone like that and for Jesus to openly say, I'll take your place, kind of sim symbolizes what he would do for us and what he does for us. Right. And so for me as a, a believer, I look at Barabbas, I'm like, man, like God had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that I could be replaced and be into his kingship. So I could be a part of his royal priesthood and his family. And it's like just the overwhelming love and grace of God right. poured out right. in the substitution. So that's how I interpret right. the whole trial of Barabbas. It isn't so much about uh, Barabbas being a man. He was just more or less... Uh, the guilty substitute that, uh, sure. that God chose to use. Right, right. And you wonder what happened to him. Like, what was his story afterward? Um, right. What, what happened with the Barabbas? Uh, my hunch is it probably wasn't leading anywhere happy. <laughs> no. What happens in Matthew 27? Yeah. Jumping off of that point. Uh, Matthew 27, oh, this would be around... 
verse uh, 24 and 25. So Pilate again sort of says, it says in my, my version here, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, look, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Right. And then in 25, all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Mm-hmm. This is sort of like Barabbas. There's a ton of irony here that is taking, the, the, the author of Matthew, uh, the author of the Gospels intends. Um, and again, you may not think as a skeptic, this actually happened. But again, let's just treat this as literature. Like, what, are the, what is the gospel telling us here? Um, uh, and again, I, I tend to think something like this did actually, yeah. <laughs> or pretty close to this. So I think there's at least three layers of, of like meaning and irony here in what the crowd is saying. And it's related to what we just talked about with Barabbas. Uh, when they say, like, his blood be on us and on our children, they're saying sort of a top level meaning they intend that they'll accept any guilt uh, if this ex- execution is indeed wrong. So like, okay, you know, th- there's bad juju, like if a dead, if a, if a guy is uh, unjustly executed, right. Pilate's worried about that. You know, we have that same sort of like taboos in, in our culture. You know, we, we wouldn't want to have, wouldn't want like the bad karma, you know, so to speak, to be on us. Um, even if that's a very vague sort of spiritual idea. Mm. Um, but the same sort of thing, like, okay, if there's any sort of guilt or, you know, bad vibes spiritually or like in the long-term view, uh, we'll take that, right? We'll take that, and that'll be on us and on our children. Can Can I ask That's you a question the, here? Yeah, shoot. Who Who is saying this? Who is saying, "Let yeah. the blood be on our hands," be or let Let His blood be upon us and our children? Because I think that's important to note. Because I think how most Easter Sunday services go is these are the same people yelling. Uh, you know, hallelujah, when he's walking into the city, they're throwing their cloaks down and letting Jesus walk on them. They're saying, you know, uh, the son of man has come and they're praising God. Like, are these the same people? Are these the same people saying crucify him? Um, Because my interpretation is the study that I've done says two different groups of people. But I'm curious, you know, as a historian, someone that studies this, who are the people saying, yeah, let his blood be on our hands? Yeah, as we talked about in the last episode, I tend to not buy the interpretation that this is just exactly the same crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be. I guess it could be. I can't rule it out. Um, but the gospel writers themselves don't really tell us that, that I'm aware. Um, the In the Greek, it says that the, the whole Laos said this. And the Laos is language that in the... Uh, the Greek Old Testament, right? This is, this is a this is a term for basically the whole assembly of the people, right, of Israel. So I think there's a sort of symbolism in this when he's talking about all the people. Well, that does sort of beg the question, like, hey, is this all the people in Judea? Well, no. Is this even all the city of Jerusalem? Well, no, uh, because like this is just this is a court scene that's going on. They can't all fit in here, especially not during Passover. This certainly isn't all the Jews in the world. But what I think is being uh, sort of loaded on here um, is that this, this is a sort of symbolic stand-in for a lot of the Jewish people more widely. The time, that, that these people, the Laos, the assembly of Israel who was here uh, in like the city of David you know, during Passover, you know, they're ready to condemn him to death. Um, do I think that they're exactly the same folks then? Probably not. But I do think there is some symbolism and irony that is woven in with this. The, the term... Is again, sort of, it would be like when the people like grumble against Moses or something like that. I don't know if that's the exact term that, that is used there in the Greek Old Testament. But this term does show up, and it usually talks about like the whole group of Israel, like as a body. Now, is it does that always mean like every single person? Well, obviously not. Right. But it's sort of talking about the 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 average <laughs> of the group um, without getting down to the specifics of the individual. Hmm. Um. Which brings up another level of irony, yeah. which is that this Matthew is probably written, most of the Gospels, I think, were written uh, after the destruction of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, mm-hmm. uh, 70 CE. Um, this is going to be, you know, what, um, about you know, 40 years, a little less than 40 years after Jesus, after this moment happens. So... Yeah, like, I think they're kind of saying here that actually there is, like, Matthew writing this, and his readers, they know this is coming down the pike. 
So when they read, you know, his blood being us and our children, they also get the second level of irony, which is, oh yeah, I remember that how actually Jerusalem got smashed and all of Judea and that like many people were like crucified in mass or taken off to Rome in you know, slavery. Yeah, uh, they actually do talk. And think about this, you know, let his blood be upon us and our children. 40 years? Well, it is going to be upon, like, <laughs> and I think this is, this is drawn out. This yeah. really is, and this is part of what Jesus means, because Jesus himself in Matthew and the Gospels has strongly indicated that uh, the destruction of Jerusalem will be part of God's judgment against Israel and will be part of his own vindication, as, as the, you know, even as the Son of Man. That part of this, the coming of the Son of Man will be a, a recognition that, oh, actually Jesus, his way, right, his kingdom was the right kind of kingdom. And it was Barabbas's kind of kingdom and his sort of principles mm. that actually got us into this mess and got, you know, our world destroyed in the, in the first place. Yeah. So that by choosing, right, that by choosing this, you know, this other guy, this thief, this insurrectionist, and rejecting Jesus, they're not only just choosing in this moment, they're choosing the, like the long-term trajectory of their people, right? And of this, this region, which will eventually, Matthew and his readers know, end in something really nasty and really unpleasant, but will in some ways have vindicated Jesus, right? Jesus can say, look, Jesus told you so, right? This is where it was gonna end. Um, so there's that level of irony. Um, you, you with me so far in yeah. that? Does that make sense? Yep. One last thing then that, that I think brings up a little bit of hope in this. In the book of Acts, in Acts 2, and the writer of Luke is, uh, the Gospel of Luke is probably, it looks like the same writer as the, the book of Acts. Um, so this is, you can see Acts is a kind of addendum to the Gospels. Peter has a speech where on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, he is preaching to the people in Jerusalem, right? And this is another time where there's people all from elsewhere in like like Passover, people are coming out of town, coming from around, around the world to celebrate this this uh, special day in the calendar. And Jesus tells them, or sorry, Jesus, <laughs> Peter, Peter tells them in uh, Acts 2, look, you guys crucified Jesus. Like You were the ones who put him to death. Um, and what we actually find there is that there, this is a huge moment where the people in Jerusalem actually turn and repent, right? Mm -hmm. there, there are, actually, I think it's in the thousands that the people see, hear this message that, that Peter, you know, Peter and the other disciples are speaking in tongues, yeah. allowed to, to speak in the language of other people. And, and lots of people from not only Jerusalem, but from around the, the wider Jewish world are repenting, right? And so I, I wonder when I read this, if there isn't a third bit of irony here, when they say, let his blood be upon us and our children, some of the people who, yeah, maybe these aren't the same people who had proclaimed him, you know, with shouts of Hosanna earlier, they may have been the same people who later on Pentecost were repenting and joining the church. Right. And so that Jesus' blood was, there was forgiveness. There was that kind of Passover symbolism of the blood of the lamb being over the door, which again, the, think of the symbolism of Passover with the destruction, um, the judgment of God coming down, in this case upon the Egyptians. But you know, what, what is the thing that gets that to Passover? It's, it's by having, it's by aligning yourself, having allegiance to Jesus and accepting his blood over your doorpost. Mm -hmm. And so you have chosen retroactively, not Barabbas, but you've chosen Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, and there's a tradition that, that, that Christians got out of Jerusalem um, before it was destroyed because they, they remembered Jesus' words about uh, foretelling its destruction, said, yep, we're going to get out of here because we, yeah. we know that this is about to, to all come down. And so I think there's a note of hope in that, right? That, that, that let this blood be upon us and our children. Um, in, in the movie, The Passion, uh, by Mel Gibson that came out, well, like I said, it's been about 20 years ago now. This phrase, uh, the funny thing about the, the Passion was that it was done entirely in Latin and Aramaic. Yeah. Um, which is actually, a, it's interesting uh, to hear like Aramaic repeated in film as well as Latin. Uh, probably actually isn't how a lot of these conversations happened. They probably happened in Greek because that was the wider shared language. <laughs> uh, if it happened in anything, but that's yeah. a, that's a you know, historian's pet peeve. Um, but this phrase, right, the, so most of the film is in English, you know, subtitles or whatever language your, your, your native tongue is. Um, this phrase was not translated, let his blood be upon us and our children, because it has had a very anti-Semitic inflammatory, con this has been used by uh, you know, 
alleged followers of Jesus to persecute. To say that you know you you Jews are the uh, people who put Jesus to death, and therefore you still have you know you you said it like your your forefathers said it. Let his blood be upon us and our descendants. And now like we're still going to hold you accountable for that because you still reject Jesus to this day. Which I think is, as I've we've said before on this podcast, you know, just so like wrongheaded in so many ways, and so against the grain of what what Jesus was was trying to teach here. Um, my my point being uh, is that this is just a very dangerous little phrase, but it's one that is full because it has like a lot of like irony and like it's it casts a long shadow, right? There's, yeah. there's a sense of foreboding upon this. Um, but again, there is a sense of hope in this too. That, that repentance is still offered by Jesus right. to people who initially reject, even today, right? People who reject him um, and have maybe worked against him. But there's still that is still an open, um, an open door, right? Yeah, I mean, there'd, there'd be a, a lot of weight behind that sentence, no matter who you are. Even modern day, if you were at a trial and crucified, you know. Uh, condemning someone to death, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you wouldn't even want to dream of putting that upon your children because you're like, what if I'm wrong? Um, right. Even people today would have, I think, even if they weren't particularly religious, they would say, yeah, they would. They would have uh, a sense of disease, like swearing on a Bible, right? Yeah. Or like you know, desecrating a grave or something like that. Even if they're not especially religious, they're just like. There's a serious sense of taboo <laughs> about it, uh, and maybe a sense that, like, yeah, you're going to get some sort of, you know, you're drawing attention to yourself and sort of storing some, some, some bad. Well, again, we'll just call it karma, even though that's not a great Christian term, um, but it's vague enough to describe how our culture thinks. But, but yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, so let's let's transition from there. We know that, you know, let his blood be upon us and our children. So Jesus is condemned to death um, by Pilate. Uh, and now we move on to the crucifixion. So just what is crucifixion, Andrew? Right. Uh, crucifixion is a mode of execution that is longstanding. There are things like it in the Middle East uh, dating you know, way, way back. But the mode that we really know uh, by the Romans that we know best again through, kind of through Jesus and his story uh, is a, a method of execution where you hang uh, a person uh, up by their arms, right, or to, you attach them to a pole. Sometimes this in, involves impaling, but I think of the Roman context usually not. The difficult thing archaeologically is that typically these sorts of criminals are not like put in very nice, like easily identifiable tombs. They're often just sort of thrown on like the rubbish heap, and so they're hard to identify. But where we have found cases of what appear to be crucified bodies, there's uh, you know traumatic uh, uh, impaling that happens. Sometimes uh, they would have just tied you down. That would have been enough. Um, the way crucifixion actually kills you is that it eventually, you know, if you're not already, like, you know, beat up significantly, you know, if you've not already been scourged or wounded somehow, mm -hmm. um, you're going to eventually just wear yourself out. Uh, it's almost sort of like slow hanging in some ways, um, that you can't uh, clear out the, the fluid that develops in your, your lungs. Uh, you can't um, breathe that out effectively because your body's wearing out. Um, and eventually you, you, you basically drown in, in your own lung fluid um, because you're just so worn out. If something else doesn't kill you sooner than that, if some other immediate you know, loss of blood or something else doesn't, doesn't take its toll. If you've been impaled with spikes in your arms and legs, you know, that, that probably, you know, people can die in this time just from you know, a blinding gone wrong. There's no antibiotics or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, we do have an interesting case where... Uh, People are actually taken down from crucifixion uh, because they were. It was a mistake. Uh, if they crucified the wrong person or something, like that, <laughs> and they still they st well, I mean, it's, it's awful. But they, you're right, and they still died. Yeah, right? they, they died after, even though people were trying to save them. Yeah, wasn't enough. Um, it was more than just you know a way of execution. This is a way or getting rid of troublemakers, right? Like Barabbas or something like that. It's also about sending a message, right? Uh, this is a mode of execution that is typically saved for slaves. 
um, are very, very low status, we'll call them capital offenders. Again, think mm -hmm. of Barabbas, think of people who don't have Roman citizenship. Uh, it is not a happy thing um, by any means. Um, think of it, it's, it's intended to be not only painful and very visible, but it's also sort of a way of saying, look, you're, you are low status, you have disobeyed us, and so we're going to also project your not only project your death, but also project how little we think of you to the whole rest of the world. So there were mass crucifixions uh, about, oh, the, the you know, the, the like the, the Spartacus revolt, right? The mm -hmm. name probably is least familiar. So that actually was a historical thing. It happened a few generations before Jesus in, in Italy. And if, the, if my memory serves, there were something like on the order of five to 6,000 rebel slaves who were crucified along the main, uh, the main highway leading into Rome, which basically means something like every you know, you know, 10 or 15 yards, there's a person crucified, there's a person crucified, there's mm -hmm. a person crucified, right. which is just like, an, you know, you, think, you start thinking about what that would look like today, right? Um, it's like, and, and, you know, those, those are presumably left up there to rot. Right, and so it's sending a very like gruesome message. You know, yeah. this is who we are. We're we have power over you. We you know, you've disobeyed us, and so eh, we're gonna get you this way. Uh, not just kill you, but kill you in the most painful, degrading way possible. I think um, to. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. Go, go ahead. This is a good. Pause. Uh, yeah. No, I was just gonna say, like, to to fully understand the resurrection, you need to fully understand crucifixion. Um, yeah. like the Romans, they were professional killers. Uh, yep. they, they weren't the only people doing it. The Persians, the Phoenicians have murdered people this way. Like you said, they, they killed thousands of people by, uh, by the cross and what it was. I mean, I've actually studied the pain and excruciating yeah. evidence of being yeah. on a cross and like where they'd have to nail it to your wrist, uh, was only the strongest point. Cause had they done it in your actual hands, your, your bones, your flesh would have ripped off. You would have fell from the cross. So they actually had to pinpoint yep. it about an inch and a half down from your palm to actually make yep. sure you could stay there. And, and as you're laying on the cross, you know, you, the only way you could breathe is to pull yourself up through those nails so you could actually breathe. Um, yeah. And, and I think I didn't learn this until I actually went to Jerusalem and, and kind of walked through uh, the, the church there. Gosh, I'm, I'm blanking um, on the actual church where it's built over where they believe the crucifixion was on Golgotha. But um, yeah, yeah. They, they said that the cross wasn't this thing that was like 30 feet in the air, <laughs> you know, kind of how we see it on portraits today. It right. was more like a foot or two off the ground. It was yeah. a very public thing, and it was like, you know, so like Jesus' last seven sayings from the cross, like they would have been able to be heard by people because it was like right there. But yeah. also it was meant to be so people could spit in your face so they could curse at you. So oh, mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was it was not a very like, hey, this is just a death. Uh, and so like when Christians like uh, adorn the cross now, right, when we get tattoos and we wear a cross around our neck, like – we're actually wearing a symbol of suffering and shame. Like, I don't think people oh, oh, yes. fully embrace that. It'd be like modern day, like wearing an electri electric chair around your neck yes. or yes. Uh, an injection, you know, a lethal injection that someone may have, like a needle, like wearing, like right. uh, having and, a tattoo. And <laughs> right. And lethal injection is so much cleaner than crucifixion. Oh, absolutely. Right? That, that, uh, that's supposed to be painless. like a, a, a nice version of execution. Not that there's any nice version, but yeah, go, go on. <laughs> no. So like, I mean, the more you study the crucifixion, the more you realize how painful a death of Jesus would have had, but also like how nearly impossible it would have been for him to rise. Right. Like as a normal yeah. human being, if you study the resurrection, cause then we get in the swoon theory and well, maybe the disciples, oh, yeah. it's like, no, they, they were terrified because right. they saw their savior go through the beating of his life, 39 lashes, and then have to carry his cross, which was another very public thing all the way. I mean, he needed help. He was so badly beaten. Yep. Only to yep. get there and, and be nailed to it and, and have the, you know, the energy to even utter the things that he uttered was only given by right. the, the grace of God. Yeah, and we'll talk about we'll bring crucifixion and its details back into the next episode. But I think those that's all really crucially. Uh, I mean, that's where we get our word "crucial" from, yeah. right? The cross of the matter. 
Um, this is, yeah, really important information about the crucifixion. Um, you brought up something, oh, uh, about the, the sort of the, again, the messaging of all of this. Um, when, so there's, there's, there's a bit that is quoted later um, that Jesus became, uh, by, by Paul in Galatians, I think, uh, that, that Jesus became a curse for us, right? Because in mm. the, the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, um, cursed is anyone hung on a tree, right? Yep. Because it's, it's considered a, a, a um, kind of a curse from God that you, you would suffer. You know, if, if this is how your life is ending, then, then God must have, like, must have it out for you in, in some sense or another. Here's another interesting little bit about crucifixion. Uh, it's a curse, right? In the Latin of the Roman Empire, which is the the language that the Romans spoke, uh, it, it's a curse, right, to basically, so, I mean, we actually see this in the comedies of their period. So think of, you know, uh, contemporary comedies even in our culture that have, you know, they'll, they'll have a lot of cursing in them or something, okay? You, you would have a pretty good idea about what you could say like what's like the worst language, right? That you could use yeah. to, in our contemporary culture. Well, we have the similar thing for the ancients. One of the worst that basically it's the, it'd be the equivalent of saying you know "f you" in uh, uh, English today would be say "go get on a cross," right? You know, you know to the cross with you. Um, that's how bad it was. Uh, it was considered you know a, a sort of popular curse. Um, you know, you you can go get on a cross, or that you would die. You know you know, so, somehow you died on a cross or died on a tree or dried, died on a pole or something like that. Um, it is a literal curse in, in the Roman culture of this day that uses this form of a crucifixion. Um, so there's this, this Jesus became a curse, right? Not only in the sort of uh, religious imagination uh, and worldview of his people, but even in the, you know, the, the mind and the language and the parlance of the people who are doing the execution, um, and so, yeah, this is a hugely, again, I like your analogy of the electric chair. I think that's right on. This is a hugely symbolic thing, right? It's not just about getting rid of people, you know, like, you know, there, there are horrific ways, you know, modern forms of killing people. You think of like the gas chambers and the Holocaust or something like that, that are mostly there for efficiency. This is not a mode of killing someone that's there for efficiency. It's there for something else. Uh, and that's to send a mm -hmm. message. So was there, let me ask you this, was there significance of Jesus being crucified outside the city? Outside the city, probably in part because you don't want this sort of thing going on in cities. Uh, in I th Well, first of all, in, in Judaism, uh, a dead body is unclean, right? Um, you don't want that sort of stuff inside the city, much less the city that has like the temple. And this other stuff going, you know, far, get that out, out of there. You don't want that hanging around. But more generally in ancient cultures, that sort of taboo about dead things is not shared quite, shall we say, it's not shared down to like the level of individual people, um, which is something interesting about Jewish law, that it extends these taboos and these rules about cleanliness down to, you know, the least member of society. Um, but it can definitely be shared by, say, like priests and kings are not supposed to, you know, look at dead bodies or be in their presence because it's defiling to them. Now, if you're like a peasant, maybe, you know, the Gentiles don't care then. Um, but generally, you don't want to have executions going on in your city. Uh, in the city of Rome, keep bringing in this, this parallel culture, there is a famous sort of uh, execution spot called the Tarpeian Rock or the Tarpeian Cliff where you don't want to be seen spilling blood in the city because again that's taboo that actually kind of like invokes think of like the abel's blood in in genesis in a similar way across broader cultures you you don't want to be spilling blood because that blood like marks the soil and has a kind of uh curse that hangs over like it can bring about plague can bring about judgment from the gods um even if it's someone who deserves execution so what do they do instead? Well, they throw people off of this rock in the city uh, to their death. That way they can say they're not the ones <laughs> who uh, uh, spilled the blood, right? It's the rock. Oh, that's gravi right. It's gravity that killed them, not, not us. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of silly and it, it probably is more legend than, than reality. Uh, but 
it, it speaks to this sort of thing. We don't want them, we don't want dead bodies. We don't want this nasty business to be happening in the sacred precinct. Uh, we, don't, we generally don't want it in our cities anyway. We definitely don't want it to be happening like in the sacred city of, of David where the temple itself is. So that's that's sort of the practical thing. Um, was there something more that you had? Is like, is there an angle you see that, that's deeper here? That well, we I, I just think it's important to note too. It's also Passover. Oh yeah. And so you have many spectators coming from all over the world to this one area, uh, and they would have passed Jesus, you know, coming and going. They would have probably seen him outside the city, and they, you know, as you said earlier, that would have been a reminder that, you know. The Romans are really in charge here, you know? Right. Uh, and so I think that kind of would have been a, a well-known, like, red flag to people like, hey, just so you know, standard, standard wraps. You're not, you're not fully in control here. Right. Um, and, 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 yeah. and by the way, uh, the guy who carries his cross, Simon of Cyrene. Um, right. Cyrene, I was just reading, is actually, this makes a lot of sense historically because Cyrene is a place that has a very well-established Jewish population um, that's very well known um, and, and old. Uh, so it makes sense that you'd have someone from that city uh, in Jerusalem at this time. Um, so yeah, he, he's, you know, he's probably a Greek speaking Jew mainly who's out here, uh, who is, yeah, he, and the, the Romans are like pressing him <laughs> to carrying right. Jesus cross. Um, and so they, they forced him to do it. Uh, yeah. So this is a, yeah, this is a message to, that you're right. The broader Jewish people who are not just from Judea, but you know, all across the he, world. Yeah. And he was a well-known figure too. I mean, you, you got to look back at his ministry. He was speaking to 5,000 people and those were just men that were counted as more likely with children and women. It was probably up to 20,000 on a hillside. Yeah. Uh, so Jesus was pretty well known. Oh yeah. Uh, but he was treated like a common, common criminal with a very common death. Uh, of a low criminal, like you said, of, of the crucifixion and the cross. But uh, if you actually, you know, one of the things that, that was interesting about being crucified with these two no notorious thieves, uh, not only did it add shame, but it also fulfilled Isaiah 53, 12, where it says he was numbered with the transgressions. Oh, yeah. And so even that fulfilling scripture and prophecy um, the Romans, I don't think, would have picked up on that as much, as much as the the Jewish people may have. Right, and I think, um, and I think Matthew and the other gospel writers are picking on that pretty explicitly. Yeah. Um, should we talk about yep. Psalm twenty two? One of the things that Jesus. Yeah, said? absolutely. Let's go there. Let's look at another one. So, one of Jesus's most famous uh, cries from the cross. One of the things he says uh, is given, interestingly enough, in its original Aramaic, which to me symbolizes or sort of strongly suggests that this was actually something that Jesus verbatim said, right? Again, in sort of the standards of ancient history, you could record what a person said with not necessarily recording, like, yep, there's no stenographers, there's no video cameras. They're not going to get it necessarily word for word. Um, I think this was something that there's a good chance Jesus actually said, and the reason, uh, said verbatim, let's be clear, and the reason is because it's, it's said in the original language that he would have been speaking. It's not in Greek. And so it's Eli, Eli, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is the opening call, the opening line to Psalm 22. Uh, this is not just Jesus saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Which kind of, a, if you just read it in a vacuum, brings up all sorts of like deep theological like problems and, and you know issues here. But if you read Psalm 22, it starts off by talking about a guy, this is presumably David, um, who's been forsaken by God. I'm just sort of scanning my eyes over some of the parts here, um, talking about how, you know, like, I'm a worm, I'm not a man, I'm scorned by men, I'm despised by the people, right? I'd be interested to go back and check on the Greek and see what that is. Is that the same people, right, the same Laos that we talked about earlier? Everyone who sees me mocks me. They hurl their insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord save him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Uh, what else does he say here? Um, do, 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 do. I am uh, poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. which sounds like crucifixion to me. Um, my heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Um, which, yeah, at this point, you'd probably be pretty thirsty on a cross. 
You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands, my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, cast lots for my clothing. And yeah, so this is like this is just like blow for blow, the sort of thing. And scholars have pointed on this, who are not necessarily just as Christians. Um, that yeah, this is, seems to be clearly like the this the the retelling of Jesus' crucifixion is drawing from Psalm 22. Um, or to put it actually this way, this actually happened, and Jesus sees the parallels and quotes Psalm 22. Yeah, because when you quote the open, think of any like popular line you know, or, or like a, a song or a poem or something like that. If you, you know, if you, it's well known, which the Psalms were, were commonly sung, right? And part of the, the heritage of the Jewish people. Everybody knows what the rest of the, the Psalm is, right? So kind of like Jesus quoting, uh, as we were talking about earlier, just a little snippet of Daniel 7 or just a little snippet of Psalm 110 Everybody knows how the rest of that you know passage goes, right? And the same right. here. Uh, that they know he's sending a message. And so why why again Psalm 22? Well, the so Psalm 22 is, is a psalm of lament, but it turns around in verse uh, 22, where he, he says, you know, Lord, you've abandoned me, and all this stuff's going wrong. But then he turns and says, Look, I will declare your name to my brothers and the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, mm -hmm. praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. Uh, which sounds like he's talking about himself there. Um, he's not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you, and he's talking about God, you, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat. Again, think about Jesus's, you know, what he talks about the poor being blessed and, and the, the, uh, the, the way the poor feature in Jesus' thought and in his ministry. They will eat and be satisfied. They, they who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Uh, and then it says, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity, right? Future generations will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he, or depending on the, the Hebrew, that he has done it. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So this is a psalm of lament. But the, the key thing to remember here is that there is a back end to the psalm which is that actually God is somehow achieving his purposes. He's not abandoned the afflicted one. That, that the, per the sufferer is actually going to be able to proclaim God's name to his brothers, right, in the congregation of Israel, uh, that this will be known. Which, again, think takes me back to the scene in Acts, right, with Peter, where Peter tells, you know, uh, the, the wider crowd, look, you may have put Jesus to death, but actually, you know, he, he's the one you've been waiting for. He's, he's the chosen one, and there's forgiveness available through him. Um, he's fulfilling this prophecy. And so Psalm 22 is a very, it's a very dark psalm, and it makes sense why he's quoting it. But we have to remember, this was a sudden turn in Psalm 22, which also, as we'll talk about next time, I think, foreshadows uh, that you know, the crucifixion is not the end of the story. This scene where Jesus dies is not where... Uh, the, the narrative of the Gospels and the narrative. This, this would not be a Gospel, right? Good news if the story just ended with the first, with the crucifixion or ended with the first part of Psalm 22. Uh, and you can even think of the thief, about the thief on the cross, right? Today, Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. Um, to even someone like Barabbas, there, there is an opening available. Um, so the story, even though many historians want to end the story here with Jesus' crucifixion, um, which even as we'll see, isn't quite fair uh, to them because there's much more that comes after. Uh, th this is not where the story ends. Um, this, there's, a, there's a promise of hope in that psalm that we, that we wait on. Um, but we'll have to come to the next episode, I think, to talk about that. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I mean, we could probably talk for an hour just on Psalm 22 yeah. and all the prophetic things that were fulfilled on the cross. Uh, you know, even Jesus mentioning of like animals 
uh, constantly, yep. you know, describing uh, bulls and lions and dogs yep. and basically saying when men reject their Lord, they become like animals. Yeah. I mean, that's the picture you're getting at the cross. And uh, uh, But it ends with hope, yeah. right? No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, I have also some, because you asked a question about this earlier um, with, with the, mm-hmm. the issue about Pilate's wife. The animals, the 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 bulls, the lions. I've some the lions. Sometime uh, in Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament is a stand-in for like demonic power, right? The the lion or the 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 snake or the scorpion, right? Um, I've sometimes wondered if this also wasn't supposed to be a comment as well that there are not only men who are you know, evil men who are surrounding, um, but there are even like demonic powers that have been circled around Jesus here on mm-hmm. the cross. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting when, um, what is it? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to botch this because uh, it's just now coming to me, <laughs> but it's an important point. Um, and it's that the, when they say, you know, if you are the son of God, right. Uh, come down from the mm-hmm. cross. Where else does that show up in the Gospels? There's, that phrase shows up very clearly in another place. Do you know where that is? If you are the Son of God, yeah. come down from the cross. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 well, not the come down from the cross part, but the, 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 the phrase, if you're the Son of God, do X. Oh, yeah. When the, the devil tempts exactly. Jesus to throw himself off the mountain. If you're you know, the Son of God, throw yourself off the mountain, call upon angels to carry you. Yeah. And so in, in many of the, this, I think it's the Synoptic Gospels, I think Matthew and Luke especially, uh, Satan, after he tempts Jesus, usually at the beginning of the story, right, doesn't appear anywhere else, really, as a figure. But suddenly, or, or as the Gospels put it, that he waits for a more opportune time, right? And so here you know, at the cross, you have these evil men who are quoting the words of Satan from earlier in the story. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross, right? If you're really God's mm-hmm. son, do this to save yourself. Um, and so I think that too also speaks to, and again, these, as I think we've probably shown <laughs> at this point, these authors are not stupid, right? That they are intentionally trying to, you might think that they're not telling a true story, and I would disagree with you, uh, but they are, you have to at least give them like literary points. They, they're intentionally making these connections and weaving these points in, you know, the, the the author of Matthew knows when that he is echoing the words of Satan in the mouths of these men before Jesus on the cross. So, yeah, yeah, this isn't just a, a human to human interaction. This isn't just a trial of like you know human error. This is like a spiritual battle going on oh, yeah. right now. You know, the this the. <laughs> The elements of darkness are in full swing, and they know it, you know? I mean, you have Judas, you know, hanging himself, committing suicide. You have evil men turning against the, you know, corrupt leaders at the top, turning against the faith to to crucify the Messiah, uh, wrongly accuse him. Uh, You have a a pilot who's over an entire region just wanting nothing to do with this, wanting to wash his hands of it, but... uh, putting it in the hands of the people to choose, and they chose a, a murderous thug. And, you know, that's just kind of where we pick up. It's it's really, uh, I don't know. It's And that's why, like, Good Friday is, like, it should be a very grim picture yeah. of what crucifixion is in the cross. Like, that's why Good Friday has always been, to me, like, more mourning, uh, even though we know the full picture. And, uh, you know, it's it's important to note, like, you know, Jewish Jewish days, too, like, Friday was an entire day because yep. some people ask the question like, well, you know, it wasn't three full days. Like, well, in Jewish calendar, like <laughs> Friday, Saturday, Sunday, those are three full days. Yeah. It doesn't matter the time. That's not significant. So not, it isn't like today where it's like 72 hours, whatever. That's really nitpicking. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah. But I've heard, you know, I've heard people, if we're really trying to reach an audience of people are like, well, what about that? Like, that's something worth, worth sharing about. But Friday uh, was, was meant to be this very grim time. Um, especially during Passover, you know, it's, it's a reflection of like death and loss and, and God, uh, covering their sins. And, and so like, there's this whirlwind, if you were to like to stand, you know, a thousand feet above Jerusalem and kind of watch all the things that are taking place on Friday, right? Yeah. You got a trial going on here. You got people worshiping over here at the temple. You got people on the, uh, the road traveling into the city from other nations and tongues and languages and, 
Uh, it's just this melting pot of like all these things going on, but yet God is still telling us he's in control. Right. And, and on the cross is like a reflection of Jesus is in full authority of what's going on right now. Yeah. And it's the... Even yeah. with the biggest temptation. Yeah. And it's the moment... Go ahead. A, a, you know, Christians looking back on this, uh, you know, either in antiquity or in, you know, just a few weeks after this, I think, um, or even today, we look back and say, this is, you know... Jerusalem is at this many ways. If you just look at the map, it's at the center of its world, right? Um, there, it's sort of the crossroads between Asia, Europe, and Africa, um, and mm-hmm. it has been, and it kind of remains to this day. Like it just, it just gets a lot of traffic, right? It's sort of at the center of right. its world, um, and here at the center of the world, uh, the, the Christians believe again, dating back as far as you know, within a few weeks, it seems, of this happening, which we'll talk about next week uh, or next time. Right. Uh, but within just a short amount of time, Christians had realized what was happening in this moment was history was turning its corner. Um, that, you know, it wasn't with, you know, Caesar Augustus. It wasn't with Alexander the Great or it was in these other empires. It, you know, it was not with, you know, your, our competitors today or the Enlightenment or... You know, some form of nationalism or you know modern economics. Those are not or science. Those are not the saviors of the world or the place where history has turned its point. Uh, Christians believe and confess um, and affirm that the, you know in these moments in Jesus' last li- uh, last week here in his life in his crucifixion and as we will see in his resurrection, this was the moment that history pivots. This is the the moment where we, we turn a corner um, and things are forever different after. Yeah, and I, I'm actually excited, Andrew, to, to tune in next time and, and talk more about the the glory that is coming Sunday of the resurrection. And so, uh, with that, we do want to wrap up um, with this podcast. And thank you guys for tuning yes. in, uh, Andrew. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. It's been fun. This has been a good one. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to uh, to our next yep. one. So, you guys have a great week. God bless, Likewise. and uh, can't wait for our next episode. <laughs>